Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hey there, listeners. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hold That Thought. I'm Rebecca King, and with Valentine's Day right around the corner, love is in the air, or at least in all of our advertising. So today I have a special guest to talk about the new anthropology of love. My name is Dredge Pyeongju Kang. I'm a postdoctoral fellow here in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Washington University. And even though we're talking about love today, Dredge and I think it's only fair that we warn you up front that this podcast is not about feeling lovey-dovey with your valentine. So I think that this is kind of the anti-Valentine's Day discussion of love, because Valentine's Day is all about romance and about these pure relationships, right? So you meet somebody, you fall in love, everything's great, and it's based on this premise that we choose who we want to be with. And what the new anthropology of love primarily focuses on is all those other social factors that aren't about these lovely, giddy emotions, but actually make love harder for people and show that love is structured in certain ways to get certain people together and to produce certain kinds of relationships and not others. Okay, so now that all of us rom-com and romance fans have braced ourselves, let's begin. The topic is the new anthropology of love, but Dredge says that anthropologists have been studying love for a while now, and from many different angles. So I guess by calling it new, it has to be contrasted with something old or something that came before the new. So before, when people talked about love, people tended to really focus on kinship. Basically, like, how do you get married? Who marries who? What are the reasons for marriage? Why does marriage differ in different places at different times? And so the focus was really about kind of the partnership that is one of the most important in society. Anthropology, too, studies people in different ways. So they're biological anthropologists, they're cultural anthropologists, etc. So love can also be studied in those different ways. Biological anthropologists, for example, can study actual physical responses that people have when they're in love, so to speak, whether that's in the brain or heart responses and things like that. And then there's been a debate about whether love, romantic love, is universal. So do all societies have some kind of notion of romance, or is it particular to certain kinds of places? And there's been a debate about that. People generally say romance is universal, but it looks very different in different places. And romance can be about things that aren't necessarily about the couple themselves. So in some places, for example, romance is about the person that you want but can't have, right? That's also the model for courtly love in European history. It's the person that you would like to have a relationship with but can't because of social circumstances. So there are, you know, different nuances to that. Dredge is a cultural anthropologist, as are many of those studying love. And he says how anthropologists look at love has shifted especially from a cultural perspective. So a lot of what's going on in what I'm calling the new anthropology of love is looking at how we're working on doing research about love now in the contemporary situation, really looking at kind of both the variation in types of relationships that are out there and how they're changing now with capitalism and modernity 
and also looking at kind of the different nuances that you see based on things like race, class, more of a focus on especially political economy in different parts of the world. I asked Dredge if he could unpack the idea of political economy a little more. Usually, these are not words I associate with love and romance. Political economy is basically, you know, the two word politics and economics together. And the idea is that there are kind of large structural issues. And the basic one is how people make a living, right? So we would call the U.S., for example, a post-industrial society. It's heavily based on a service economy. You could contrast that to a place that's more agricultural. So that's going to shape, for example, how the society operates. And then in the contemporary world, we have capitalism, globalization, etc. So these are all kind of large forces that shape how societies can operate. Politics is about every society has a government and how that government operates affects what goes on in people's daily lives. So it's really looking at kind of how these big, big picture issues shape what's considered very intimate and personal. And part of the idea is that when people think about love, people think about it as an emotion, as a basic emotion, something that more or less all humans have, and that it's kind of innate in us, as opposed to thinking about how does society and culture shape love, the way we think about love, who we love, what we expect in love, and what looking at political economy and its relationship to love does is looking at how love changes based on what are the possibilities for different people in different places. And political economy affects all types of love. Friendship, romantic love, even parental love. But for today, with Valentine's Day not far away, we'll stick with focusing on romantic relationships. So, for an example of how political economy can shape who we fall in love with, and even who we marry, Dredge turns to his research on transnational relationships. So there's a literature, especially now in East and Southeast Asia, on marriage migration. Before there was kind of a larger literature on what were termed mail order brides, which now have become internet brides. So typically in the past, it was women from Asian countries who would marry men from Western countries, and then they would move to, to live with them. Since moving from mail to the internet, Dredge also notes that, aside from things moving much faster these days, the phenomenon has also expanded so that women from Russia, Eastern Europe, Central America, and South America are taking part too. And now what we're seeing in Asia in particular is that one of the patterns of this marriage migration is shifting in that women are no longer going to Western countries. So, for example, there's a large migration of Filipino women that are going to Japan. And there's a large migration of Vietnamese women who are going to Korea. So there are kind of different trends that are evolving. And some of them are quite particular, like why Filipinos go to Japan and why Vietnamese go to Korea. But there are also just wider trends. And the trend is typically what's called hypergamy. So the idea with hypergamy is that women tend to marry up in social status. So for example, if you had a male doctor, he might marry a nurse, he might marry someone who's a secretary, etc. But if you had a female doctor, she's more likely to marry someone else who's a doctor, who's a lawyer, etc. 
So generally the idea is that you have women marrying up in status, and some people kind of refer to it as an exchange of a man's wealth and status and typically a woman's beauty. So that's the general pattern. So that's why the movement is primarily of women from Southeast Asia, which are generally developing countries, to East Asia, which has more developed economies like Japan and Korea. Hypergamy is not just a trend within transnational marriages. In fact, it's quite common for marriages that happen between two members of the same society, including within the United States. In the U.S., part of what I'm looking at, too, is that there are racial patterns in terms of how hypergamy works. But they're also layered by ideas around gender. So in the U.S., you have a pattern where Black women and Asian men in particular are considered undesirable partners. Part of that is that they break the kind of stereotype of what a woman or a man should be. So black women are considered too masculine in terms of being a woman, and Asian men are considered not masculine enough in terms of being a man, right? So not meeting what are stereotypical ideas around correct gender performance, which are based on kind of a white middle class idea of what that performance should be. Dredge says that these racial trends are captured in studies of online dating services like OkCupid and Let's Meet, where Black women and Asian men get the lowest response rates to their messages and the lowest ratings or amount of likes. Alternatively, white men and Asian women receive the most positive responses on these sites. OkCupid has been tracking statistics since 2009, and if you're interested, you can read more about these stats on their blog. And we'll include a link on our social media as well. And overall, the trend with hypergamy and other kinds of issues in terms of looking for romantic partners is that the feminized partner is usually looking to move up in status, right? And so globally, what that means is that if you think about kind of power and hierarchies, the most ideal partner for the most people would be a Caucasian man. So part of my research is specifically looking at a case where that doesn't occur. In his research, Dredge is looking at gay Thai men, and based on the trends that we just talked about, he expected to find that gay Thai men would say that their ideal partner was a Western white male. This too, he says, is the kind of narrative that often appears in popular culture a younger Thai man partnering with an older white Western man. However, this wasn't what he found. When I went to Thailand and started doing research there, a lot of people told me, actually, that's not what I want. I don't want a white male partner. I'd actually prefer to have a Thai partner or a Korean partner or a Japanese partner. So then I started having to think about what was going on in the local context. And my argument around that is that Thailand has an international reputation for sex work because the transnational sex industry in Thailand is quite large and very visible. So for sex workers, any relationship with any person is a good thing because that's how they earn their income. But for people who are middle class in a context where there are a lot of sex workers, one of the things that they're trying to do is differentiate themselves from the sex workers. So in everyday Thai public space, especially in the big cities, people make assumptions about who you are based on who you're with, like anywhere else. So if a Thai person sees a Thai person, whether it's male or female, with a Caucasian male, they generally assume that the Thai person is a sex worker and is 
partnered with that male because they're getting financial gain from it. And in that kind of a context, if you want to differentiate yourself and say, no, this is not who I am, and I'm actually someone of middle class or high class or whatever, then you specifically want to avoid those kinds of public performances that would point to you being a sex worker. So that's why I argue that in this particular context, the middle class Thai gay men are specifically avoiding relationships with Caucasian men because they don't want to be seen as sex workers. So that's one of the ways that larger processes, these are kind of larger economic issues around global inequalities, economic issues around who does sex work, who doesn't do sex work, and racial inequalities as well. They're all in this local context shaping what people's individual desires are in a particular way. And because the middle class people are trying to differentiate themselves from the sex workers, they're molding their desires away from, quote unquote, the ideal Caucasian man to other Asian men who in public space don't stand out and therefore don't point to you having necessarily a transnational relationship or a relationship with someone who would be considered a financial sponsor. So that's a way to link the political economics, which are kind of the big picture issues, with things that are very minute and on the ground, and a way to talk about how people's desires are shaped by these larger issues. So we all want to believe that we love who we love because we are certain people and the person that we love is a certain person. And we all want to believe that our desire is completely unbiased, right? We could love anyone as long as they were the, the right match for us because we could have this bond. But in fact, our desires and the patterning of our relationships are influenced by society and wider processes. So even if we have these kinds of ideals, and that's, that's the ideal that romantic love is about. Romantic love is about, you know, it doesn't matter, right? You could be on opposite sides of the tracks. It could be an interracial marriage. It doesn't matter. It's just that there's a connection between two people who love each other and therefore everything else is okay. And so that's the kind of ideology that romantic love provides. But in actuality, that's not what we see happening in large parts of the world and even in places like America where we have a very strong ideology of romantic love, our relationships are still very highly structured by things like socioeconomics. There aren't so many marriages where people cross class. And then when they do, it's much rarer for the male to be of a lower status than the female. So those patterns still kind of exist and show that people aren't just randomly finding their love mates and engaging in relationships, but that their relationships have structural patterning. Whether you're still looking for the one, or you're lucky enough to go home to them every night, being aware of how larger societal and political economic processes influence what we think of as our personal desires and feelings is important knowledge in love and in life. Many thanks to our guest today, Dredge Kong, a postdoctoral fellow in Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies at Washington University in St. Louis. And thanks to all of you, too, for tuning in to Hold That Thought. Keep up with all of our latest by following us on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Stitcher, 